Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Eleven. Tonight, we get to talk with you about a new Star Wars show that not only am I really excited about, a lot of folks who are not normally big into the Star Wars world are also really excited about uh, because it has political commentary context and artistry that has made it an incredibly engaging show. That's right. Tonight, we're talking about Andor. It's a political thriller, a noir. It's a heist. It's British working class soap opera, kitchen sink drama. It's many things. And it's also very Star Wars to the core. In fact, it's exactly the Star Wars these droids have been looking for. Joining me to talk about it are Claudia Amenabar is a media critic and script consultant who co-hosts RuPalp's Podrace, a queer Star Wars podcast, and Mystery Spotcast, a supernatural rewatch. She has appeared on NPR, The Mary Sue, io9, Comics Beat, and more. While suffering through a toxic and unstable career in journalism, she decided to read and watch the entire Star Wars canon. So she has an absurd amount of knowledge about this universe. Welcome back to the show. Hi, I'm glad to be here. We've been talking about doing a Star Wars comics episode for a while, and we keep, and I have been late in doing it. And then as soon as I began watching the show, I was like, actually, we need to cover this right away. So we have to talk about our number one current space Latino currently. So exactly. And we can talk about the others in a future episode, but you, you heard it here. That is to come. Uh, but yeah, Claudia was on a couple of years ago to talk about Steven Universe with me. Oh, I love that. I love that episode. I love that movie so much. Yeah, it was a great episode and folks should definitely listen to it because that is an amazing piece of television. And also joining me, but this, this joining me for the first time, despite knowing me for like 50,000 trillion years, and in fact, co-founding a conference with me, joining me for the first time is Charles Lenchner. He is a guest with a history of rebellions and resistance. Maybe not from a galaxy far, far away, but raised in Israel where he resisted the occupation and even spent time in prison for refusing to be a soldier. Since then, he's been part of several major movements, including anti-corporate globalization, stopping the Iraq war, Occupy Wall Street, the historic rise of Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. Yes, this is fabulous. This, this has been a long time coming. And it's true. Star Wars has always been political. I mean, the initial three movies were very much about the Vietnam War, um, but that this was the uh, kind of what I saw as the most focused on the politics of the rebellion itself in one of the TV shows. Uh, I knew that this was a conversation that we we had to have. You know, in terms of background, I, I'm someone who, you know, when I was very young, Star Wars was everything to me. Uh, I literally had two pop culture things. I had Star Wars and I had the Beatles and that was my entire pop culture world. Um, I oddly enough did not end up like reading the extended universe books or any of that stuff. I just didn't, and I didn't even watch the prequels until much, much later. Um, but now I'm someone who, you know, I, I, we've covered Mandalorian on the podcast. I think it's a pretty great episode. Um, we've covered most of the movies, but I'm not like a Star Wars hardcore expert, even though I did spend my early childhood telling everyone that I was Luke Skywalker. Um, Claudia, as you can see, <laughs> is definitely like the person who I go to about Star Wars the most because she knows pretty much everything there is to know. 
she might deny it, but it's, it's really true. Um, and Charles, you know, I, I, we had never talked about Star Wars really until I asked you about doing this. And I wasn't sure what your connection was to the original source material, but if you wanted to give us a quick rundown of your background in Star Wars. Well, uh, as the, as the oldest person on this podcast today, I will let you guys, uh, remember that Star Wars came out on May 25th, 1977. And by July, I was visiting the United States where I got to see the movie when it was still a big deal. Being only eight years old, uh, not everything made sense to me, but I do remember the spectacle and I do remember the uh, magical appearance of something called action figures, which looked suspiciously <laughs> like dolls to me, but um, you know, we'll <laughs> let that pass. <laughs> oh my God. No, I love the act. So, you know, I want to make the earlier part of our episode spoiler free because I know that there are some folks who are feeling maybe burned out on star Wars. Um, you know, they're not really keeping up with the shows. Like I have, I didn't like watch Kenobi, for example. I, I, I didn't even watch Boba Fett. Charles, do you want to give us the quick rundown of what you would tell our fellow leftists who, you know, maybe like star Wars, but have kind of dropped out of watching it. Um, give them the pitch for why they should watch the show. Um, I'll say it's the, it's the most significant star Wars property that sort of got me excited and interested. And it's all very recent because it's a new show. But I was able to see things in the show that I just do not remember seeing elsewhere in the Star Wars universe. Um, I, I didn't even know who Gilroy was until halfway through the season. Um, what I'll say is that this show is taking a look at the dynamics between Imperial Authority and Resistance movements. And it's subjecting both of them to a ruthless, ruthless examination of the specifics of how those things operate. And there could be nothing more important in this day and age than for more people to understand those mechanisms. Hear, hear. Claudia, in the midst of so much Star Wars media, what, what makes this show really stand out for you? Yeah, so I, I, I always hesitate to be like, ah, oh, it's really different than the rest, et cetera, et cetera, because um, I've done a lot of like introducing people to Star Wars for the first time. So I have rewatched certain things a lot. And what's very interesting about this show is it takes place at the same time as Star Wars Rebels, which is one of the uh, other best Star Wars TV shows. And I think also one of its most political. Mm -hmm. Rebels. Oh, that's that 3D animated show from what? Like the mid 20 teens, which I have not watched yet, but it is on Disney plus. Um, I would be fascinated to hear a, uh, what Charles thinks if you ever go watch Rebels because it also examines these same ideas and a lot of people don't watch it because they're like, oh, it's for kids or oh, it's animated and it's it's quite out there. But what I like, what is interesting about this show is it combines bringing Star Wars back to obviously being political, but also that like live action. I don't even know what to what word to use to describe from like a filmmaking perspective that like crispiness kind of deal we usually have a lot of cgi a lot of high budgets a lot of whatever when i'm watching this show i can tell how much money and time went into it because it it's they're making it feel with the practical effects and the real sets and all that kind of stuff it feels very much like actually the original trilogy a lot mm -hmm. pace is slower just like the original trilogy um you just have shots of people walking um, a lot. Like the there, you have a lot of just the detail on screen is so palpable. I'm a big advocate for if you're going to use a medium, you know, m make there be a reason for it. And a lot of times when we do live action, it's just because, oh, well, more people are going to watch live action because it makes more money or whatever. And this really makes the case for like we're doing live action because it it 
tells the story in a specific way. Um, I would mm. also say for people who are not Star Wars people, like the people working on this, they worked on shows like The Americans, The Crown, and uh, House of Cards. And it, it you can very much tell that. So if you like that kind of thing, and, and you might go into Star Wars and be like, wow, I didn't know Star Wars could do this. I think it's also a mm-hmm. very good example of how like, this is why people like Star Wars. There is a Star Wars for everyone and and it can do a lot of different things. Um, and for me, as somebody who has consumed a lot of it, I think um, it's very refreshing for them to finally go, let's try something different and not play safe. And it works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, right. There are a couple other projects that I think also do that, but they have, they're very different. But I, it's very refreshing to see. It's very nice to see that they, they've said, okay, have at it, do something crazy. And I've read a couple interviews with Tony Gilroy where he was like, are you sure you want to let me do something kind of out there? And they let him do it. And I've been just astonished, especially it's hard also to talk about this show and especially any show right now because they're all made by like mega corporations. And so it is kind of astonishing the the politics that are coming out of this show, but also then knowing the entertainment landscape, every single show comes out of a mega conglomerate um, corporation. So it's a weird paradox. If we're going to live in this world where half the things we watch are in a franchise, what happens when it's good and interesting and try something new, um, then you're going to be satisfied by that. Um, And I think a lot of people felt that way about The Mandalorian as well. Like a lot of people came back to Star Wars. A lot of people went to Star Wars for the first time because The Mandalorian. This show is completely different from that um, for different reasons. But um, I think that it's it's kind of a a piece like that. And I think there's a lot of people who are like, oh, it's so different from the rest of Star Wars. They have a whole things about like how mercenaries are a part of revolutionary movements and whatever. And I was like, I mean, that's Han Solo. Like it's literally like the most Star Wars that it gets. It's 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 Mm. very it almost brings Star Wars back to what it originally was. Um, So it's Star Wars reduced down to its purest form almost um, without as much of the magic, which is fine for me right now. That's a really great point, though, that like that some of these themes have always been have always been in it. And I guess maybe putting it into this like more dramatic adult focused story with a nice big budget that's used on practical effects and acting and costumes. Oh, my gosh, the costumes um, kind of reminds people that that it's in there, too. I guess I would just add as a final pitch to folks who haven't checked out the show that, you know, I, I feel like there's so many cinematic touchstones in it that it don't feel like there's no like straight up homage to something where I've been like, Oh, they took that, you know, this is the baby carriage going down the stairs, you know? Um, But um, you know, I see echoes of stuff like army of shadows in it and Tony Gilroy himself, you know, he, he's direct, he's the showrunner of the show. He like made Michael Clayton, which is an extremely political movie. Um, You know, I, when I was at the writer's guild, he's extremely well-respected amongst his peers. And, um, so I, it was, it's really cool to see them letting him go about it. And I guess if you're like me, like I, I'm burned out on Jedi. I'm definitely don't like the way that the, the final trilogy movies seem to twist in the end into making things into a drama about a Royal family. Like I find that, I find that offensive almost like, like, why would you do that? That's at yeah. odds with everything powerful. And so this show is so the opposite of the saga of a genetically connected family of important people. This is about the family of resistance that's being forged from people all over the galaxy. Um, 
I just want to bring up something that was actually very widely discussed and known when the movie came out and throughout the, the first trilogy. And that's the way that George Lucas was basing his entire arc off of stuff he gleaned from Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth. Yeah. And there was a very conscious effort to sort of look at the inner workings of myth-making and then apply it to filmmaking in a way that hadn't really been done before, even though, you know, the principles are, are fairly universal. This is the very same time period in which postmodernism comes to rise in places like France with Foucault and Baudrillard. If you look at the publication dates of seminal works of postmodernism and the first three movies of the Star Wars trilogy, an incredible overlap. One of them is asserting boldly the power of universal ideas to shape and guide human destiny. And the other is asserting that universal ideas are oppressive inherently, and they will never not be repressive. And this clash between the specific and the universal, between the personal and the political, um, is something that I think Andor brings into stark relief in an amazing way. Where the first three episodes, the first three movies are basically full of characters running around saying, yeah, let's save the galaxy. That isn't really what's happening with the main characters of Andor. They're not running around saving the galaxy. They're taking revenge. They're having a relationship with someone they deeply care about. They're responding to, um, you know, to a crisis in their own lives where they have to make a decision and participating in either the rebellion or in oppression is the way that they resolve their personal crisis. And I think it's a much more honest understanding of the dynamics at play whenever we have intense uh, political struggles. And in that way, mm. Andor is bringing the Star Wars canon away from George Lucas's vision with the focus on universal mythmaking and moving it closer towards a postmodern understanding that the personal specific things that people do is the antidote to those oppressive myths and rules and regimes and empires that are trying to dictate who we should be, who we ought to be, what we ought to aspire to, and smashing it to bits. One of the the problems with the way the whole Star Wars Joseph Campbell thing started to be talked about is, I mean, like, look, I saw that special, the TV special that they did when I was in high school. And high school was like, oh, we're going to study Jung and we're going to talk about the monomyth and we're going to talk about the hero's journey. And like the second I get to college, it's like, now we're postmodernists and all of that shit is oppressive. And the, <laughs> the funny piece is that like, as much as Star Wars is an invaluable way to illustrate those principles to people because it was built to do that, basically, like the people who have the most reactionary reactions to Star Wars, their true loyalty in some ways is to having the most Joseph Campbell literalist read of the story and an inflexibility to understand that narratives can do other things and that it's okay, that you don't have to stick to that hero's journey story and like whether or not how well a story does the hero's journey is not what determines whether or not it's a good story. And I, I think that there's great value and interest in reading the Campbell, but like people are definitely like they, they turned it in their heads into like a religion of its own. Basically. It's very silly. Well, um, what's, what's interesting mm -hmm. about it also is that this has always been the struggle of specifically star Wars fandom. And like every time a new iteration of star Wars has come out, whether they started out with like some of the books or when the prequels or whatever, every time it has come out and it has been like, let's take a different look at star Wars because like the prequels, they're not the hero's journey. They are a tragedy. They're very different. That kind of thing. Like, you know, we have different points with different projects and every single time there have been people who have reacted. And so now when you look at star Wars as a whole, it's 
a different, it's a different view, a different mirrored look each, each and every time. And the people who are like, no, I want it to be like that original thing that much is like, is, is so interesting because it's like, you're ignoring now most of Star Wars. <laughs> mm. Um, it's mm-hmm. very, it's, they, they want it to be so, and it's funny because I recently, was rewatching the originals with some friends who hadn't seen it before. And, you know, the reactionary people online would be like, yeah, the woke liberals, they've, they've ruined Star Wars. They put women and black people in it. And there was a shot <laughs> in um, Empire Strikes Back that is like Chewbacca and then Lando and Leia in a scene or whatever. And my friend next to me goes, man, the liberals, they're ruining Star Wars <laughs> kind of deal. And it's funny also because when this, when the second movie Empire Strikes Back came out, like, there were people who were like, this is ruining Star Wars, whatever. And it's this thing of this, it is our, one of the most inherent things of Star Wars for people to be like, it's ruining Star Wars because it changes every single time. <laughs> it's very, it's very interesting to me when you're, you're talking about how like, oh, people want it to be that, the that specific construction of myth. Well, one of the things that they did that felt fresh to me and I mean, like, I'm sure that there's literally nothing that hasn't existed in the Star Wars written canon and extended universe written canon, et Except for gay people well, on screen, which well, Andor yes, also we, has given yeah. us. <laughs> we had space, we had space husbands, but they were plausible deniability space husbands in Rogue One. And now we finally have space lesbians who have no plausible <laughs> deniability. They are 100% space lesbians. We did it, Joe. Yeah. So give it a watch. And now we're going to go full spoilers through episode seven. Um, that is, those are the episodes that have come out so far. And those are the ones that we will be covering. So if you haven't seen the show, go watch through episode seven, come back, join us then. And, um, and we're, we're back. One of the moments, I think it was Val, who was the, uh, the woman who was sort of the, the leader of the strike force of the, re- of the rebels says to, Clem or Andor, I should say, um, when he finds out that the uh, one of the members of their, well, when he finds out that the person who's on their side of the inside job of this heist is an officer in the Empire, and she explains that he's disillusioned with the Empire because of a shitty thing that happened with his romantic relationship, basically, and like there's this quizzical response from Andor, and she says everyone is fighting their own rebellion. And that is just one of those quotes that is so real that people join revolutionary movements and protest movements and politics for personal reasons, not just for political belief and ideology. Um, I, I'd love to hear folks sort of reflect on that from from the series. And I actually had thought that that was something that Andor had said to Jin Erso and. I yeah. Googled it. I don't think she. I don't think he did. He gives a whole speech about why it's personal to him. That that's the one thing people are like. Oh, there's not a lot of cameos, not a lot of references. And like Tony Gilroy is referencing Rogue One left and right in this show. <laughs> so yeah, um, he, one of his more most famous speeches that they kind of base this show on is the one he, that he does in Rogue One, which is my number two Star Wars movie, where he's like, I I've been in this fight since I was five years old, and you know it's really fresh of you that you can just ignore it. But, you know, some of us have made a lot of sacrifices. And it's very interesting because now we're seeing his backstory of like, he tried to ignore it just like her, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it is definitely a reference to that. And like his, that it was, it was personal for him. You could even extrapolate it to like the different parts of the Rogue One crew. They all come for different reasons. Some of them personal. So it was very interesting that they're like, yeah, we're going to say that. All right. 
<laughs> Although in Rebels, mm-hmm. it always was pretty clear as well. But I'm going to keep yeah. talking about Rebels because it is my my bestie and my 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 favorite friend. Um. I really assumed, though, that the line, everyone is fighting their own revolution, was a callback to a specific line, though. So I was surprised when it actually hadn't been said. But it's one of those things that I think I hope will stick with people the way that, you know, here's is this how liberty dies to thunderous applause kind of like has stuck with people, even if, like, I don't give a fuck about the prequels, but that line is fucking killer. You know, um, George, yeah. George was really, he was trying to make a commentary about the Bush administration. Did it come across all the time? No, it didn't, but that did pop off a bit. It did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really, like, there is, like, that movie, as much as it's bad, it really does hate the Bush administration. Yeah. I, I, as do did, I. We share that. <laughs> he did keep it going in the Clone Wars. Like, there was a whole... There was a whole species of aliens where their main senator was named after Halliburton. Like he, he wasn't. Oh God, he, he he's wasn't, not subtle. No, he was not subtle about it at all. And I appreciate that quite a lot. I think that's an interesting part of this show is that like when the politics are clear and straightforward and not like, oh, I can't, I kind of see what you're doing here. I think that's a big, a big difference, and that's why I've been. This is not the only current project where I've been. Su- pleasantly surprised i think that's one of the things that i'm very interested in is like oh being more clear or putting their line in the sand kind of deal and i don't know mm-hmm. if that's because there are people with more left-leaning politics who are finally getting to be in more storytelling or in in bigger roles or they feel like they can be more supported by whatever I, I don't know what that means, but it definitely feels more it feels more clear one of the things that felt new to me in terms of the like the movies or TV shows that are the recent Disney plus TV shows was actually having a rebel writing a manifesto and sharing a piece of that with a viewer, sharing it with a viewer. And so often when popular media has people, characters in it who are doing writing political theory or writing philosophy, it shows it in the most condescending way possible. And often the theorist is an idiot and wrong or they talk about it abstractly, but give you no window into the actual content of the manifesto. And the fact that not only was the young comrade compelling, the young comrade was, I would argue from what I heard him say, correct. No one does that, you know, like, usually they have the good left politics people be the sympathetic anti-hero, you know. Um, and the idea that it sort of showed that developing a manifesto and doing intellectual work around this had to be both rooted in someone doing some of the work of rebellion and that others involved in rebellion also viewed it, not uh, not everyone viewed in rebellion viewed it as valuable, but that there were other people who were not academics and writers who did still think there was some validity in like him doing this. Canonical leftist discourse yes, <laughs> did yes. occur. It was very funny. I, 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 I'm so interested. I now understand why you were asking me to think about the manifesto before the show. I didn't get what you got at all. I came at it from a mm. completely different angle. As Come as you me. know, yeah. I've been on a journey recently of, of exploring my own neurodiversity as someone who was diagnosed with autism and ADHD. And, uh, and not as an adult, just completely suppressed for 40 years. And um, I saw an autistic young man with a special interest being treated kindly by his comrades. That's so powerful. Uh, I saw a model for how someone like that, and we all know people like that. We three might be people like that. <laughs> and we saw, we saw how valuable they were, how important their participation was, how meaningful it was. And I feel like we live in, in a real world where situations like that are far harder to come by, 
especially for anyone who's participated in movements at, while being neurodiverse. It is rarely like that. And that's another way in which Andor is humanizing the experience, both of resistors and you know the other side, by showing us the human psychological dynamics that are at play. It's, it's mm. funny you also say the hyperfixation part. Um, my friends and I on our podcast, we love to just be like, oh, well, that character's gay. And be like, oh, that's our autistic king. We just say that all the time. So it's really great that you were like, and here's an actual argument for why. When usually I just look at a character, I'm like, that's my ADHD king. But, <laughs> but um, Comrade Nemec, a joke that we did make, we called it the, the Communemic Manifesto, was it, what was cool about that speech was he, he talks about his philosophy, but then he also talks about um, his hyperfixation on technology and how he's like, all the technology we have shouldn't be owned by the empire. We should know how to use stuff, whatever. So seeing a conversation about that, you know, I've had conversations with like, people I've organized with and your cybersecurity when you go to a protest and stuff like that. So yeah. seeing that kind of literal conversation um, in the show, it was wild. And this is my hyperfixation. And they were like, cool, great. Now he's in charge of that. I wanted to add here that um, we have a, 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 another character. And I think this is the foil for, uh, for the what I'm going to call the manifesto guy as someone who does not remember names. And that's the, uh, the agent of the empire who's obsessively trying to do his job. What is his name, Claudia? His name Nem is Cyril Karn. Uh, I call him Javert. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's perfect. So Javert, I look at him also as a neurodiverse person. I mean, look at his mother, oh, yeah. who, who uh, excuse me for thinking that was an assault on the Jewish people, but, but ignoring that for one second. Yes, no, I literally had that in my questions. Like, can we talk about whether or not <laughs> no, his, his mother is anti-Semitic? <laughs> we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. <laughs> The, the Jewish co-host on my podcast, he he has talked about, I think the, the word, shout out to Noah, he said, he was like, I'll accept uh, that representation, even though it's very hateful, I'll accept it for now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But he, what it, what is this man? It's someone who's tried really hard to survive, not by navigating social and status situations with maximum flexibility and creativity but by adhering to the actual rules and trying to follow them in the face of all these other conniving people around him who have excellent reasons for not doing so. I think he's neurodiverse. And I oh, think sure. his, his neurodiversity has a lot to do with the fact that he's being raised by that woman. And not in the sense that your mother causes it to happen consciously, but in the sense that he was not affirmed as a child. That is not a mother who's a, being attuned to her son, even as an adult, even after all those years. And what is his response? His response is to say, I don't care how long this is going to take. I'm going to be on the correct, logical, line-by-line -line side of whatever issue I have to face. And, uh, you know, I appreciate people like that. <laughs> Well, you know, I think one of the things that keep coming to also, it comes up twice, is that he's had his he's had his outfits tailored because he has a vision of how he wants to present himself to the world. And he's maybe masking. it's also he's masking. Yep. He's saying, I look everywhere and I can see very clearly this is how it's done. So I'm gonna do it. And then someone comes along and says, Yeah, but like it's not really what you think it is. And he's like, fuck that. I don't care. You can't like invent a whole set of symbols and status rules. And then as soon as I'm smart and powerful enough to mimic them, now it's different. Screw that. I'm going to do mm -hmm. it. I, Claudia, he, yeah. he reminds me of my favorite, as close as to a canonically autistic character there is, Thrawn, who he's a character who 
started out in the books. A lot of people, he was their first favorite Star Wars character because when there was no new Star Wars content for decades, the books were their thing. He's basically Sherlock Holmes in space if he was evil. Mm. He struggles with the fact that he follows the rules and he does what is most logical, you know, for peace and order and whatever. It was very interesting when they introduced Cyril Karn, who I like to call pathetic Thrawn. I like when they bring in these kinds of characters and they do this with all the coverage of the Empire, especially in Andor, where it's these bitches are just fighting. They're bickering. They're petty. It's all personal, whatever. And you bring in somebody who's like, well, I- I'm just trying to follow the rules and do what's right. Someone was killed. And for these characters, it's literally because that is how their mind works. It is like a one track mind. This line, you hear it in all you hear it in the movie, peace, order for the galaxy, whatever is is a con and a scam because you got people who are like on the straight and narrow you're like yeah it's just about power when they reiterate that over and over again you know even the people who think that they are doing the right thing if they are following the fascist regime it's it's not going to work out for them i'd like to jump in here with just a teeny bit of a sort of world historical context um there's a famous uh saying from uh, muslim history which is that 40 years of tyranny is better than one day of anarchy. Now, this, uh, this was not uh, just something that a bunch of powerful people made up. They were responding to situations in their, in their timeline where societies were absolutely devastated as a result of rebellion. Whether they succeeded or failed, the impact on common people was, was devastating. And you can understand why a, a, a shock to the system that's traumatic enough to a, to a people, to an ethnicity, to an empire, would result in that kind of attitude. We're, we're not really given context for why there are so many people who willingly, with their eyes open, embrace empire, even as they can see that it's not perfect. They can see the flaws, and they still land hard on that side. Um, we don't see that, but the character of Cass gives us a clue. Whatever happened to him, he ended up being raised in horrific conditions, cages they mentioned some sort of juvenile childcare facility. Imagine a society full of people who experience something comparable and imagine them understanding quite well that 40 years of empire is indeed better than one day after which you are completely smashed to bits. My my co-host Ollie, their favorite character in Star Wars is Palpatine and because he's evil, but because he understands that concept so well, that is the reason he creates the Clone Wars. So, like, because he basically creates the chaos so that so many people will be like, this, the war and the chaos was so awful that I would rather be ruled by the Empire. He engineers that situation, basically. It's a level of evil that is beyond. Wait, 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 wait. You're saying that it's evil to engineer chaos? Because I'm under the impression that's the Hmm. entire strategy of the resistance. To actively actively provoke mass repression throughout the galaxy as basically a a propaganda gambit. How is that worse on an ethical plane? Tell me the rule that makes it wrong for the Empire to do it, but good for the rebels to do it. It's a... Uh, <laughs> you're, get, right. you're you're getting into you're getting into what um the worst people in Star Wars fandom have decided to make their personality with this show um oh. on uh, when they're like maybe the Empire and the Rebels are the same and they're like well, well they're I mean the, the whole point is that like yes but they're not 
that, yeah. that they're not. The whole point is like, well, what are they? What are? What is the purpose of the chaos? What is the purpose of the rebellion? What is the purpose of this? In the Clone Wars, whatever, it's because like the Republic was really fucked up and really bad, and the Separatists, basically mm-hmm. Palpatine. He stokes real fears. He stokes real fears and real frustrations so that there are people who separate from the Republic. It's all about like, well, what was the purpose of it? And that's why there's a lot of people because they don't know that the purpose was literally Palpatine just going, yeah, because I wanted it to be that way. Um, You know, they go, well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. For some people, they see it in in universe. They see it as the same because they don't know. But like, we know, like, we know the, yeah. There's a tactical point here worth considering, which is both sides are attempting to use polarization to advance their goals. And both sides are using polarization in a deceitful way where the goal is for people to become polarized without understanding the underlying mechanics. And as a result, you can look at modern politics. You can look at any issue you want and ask the question, who is doing the polarizing? What agenda does it serve? And when you look at politics through that lens, you find that this is not a left issue. It's not a right issue. It's not a top or bottom issue. Everyone is deceitfully, manipulatively using polarization to achieve their ends. What's interesting also is that, like, for some of the people, I mean, for the people on the rebellion side, for instance, like, you were saying that it was deceitful. I think for some, I don't know, are we using things to polarize people, you know, in a in a deceitful way i think i don't know if a lot of people like the re- everyday people like consider it to be deceitful yeah that was a calculated move to get people to think or act a certain way but then there's sometimes where they're just kind of like pushing over a domino of the people that already felt that way so it's like yeah yeah i'd love to give a, a clear historical example from our timeline that explains this dynamic in a really good way In the late 60s, um, the Palestinian resistance movement made a decision. It could not defeat the Israelis. It could not defeat Zionism. It could not liberate their people without recruiting these surrounding Arab states into the fight. And they observed that the surrounding Arab states, aside from some words, they're mostly okay with not doing much. And the issue of Palestine was used to prop up the regimes of the surrounding states who didn't really do much for the Palestinian cause. So uh, Fatah and other movements that were in the ascendancy at that time, their strategy was, why don't we launch attacks on Israel from neighboring states in order to provoke Israeli reprisal raids, which will be so damaging that those states will be unable to face their own people without a massive response of their own. Now, when I say this was deliberate, I mean, you could Google this and see like people discussing in English exactly how they were going to do this. And the best example is in Jordan, where in 1970, there was a you know massive upheaval because yes, finally, eventually Israel was like, we're going to bomb the shit out of Jordan unless you do something about the Palestinians. And Jordan kicked them out, kicked them all the way through Syria into Lebanon. And then Lebanon became the staging ground, which resulted in a very long you know, at the end of the day, civil war that completely destroyed Lebanon. So I'm not here to say this was good or bad, right or wrong. I'm here to say in this timeline, people are doing this. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's really illustrative about um, one of the reasons I'm really glad we're taping this after the last episode that we just saw is you see the response between Bix versus Marva, the response to the, re- the rebellion as experienced by the two people like Marva understands the heist to have been a political action 
uh, views the people who did the heist as heroes. And of course, it's interesting us, you know, for us to see Andor responding to that, where you can see his self-doubt and his sort of, he's sort of like a sort of doubt and his bitterness, you know, towards Ski and sort of showing through and how he reacts to that. But you, you, But she's views them as heroes and aspirational. And she's like, I'm inspired by them. We have to stop running from the empire because we can't run from the empire. We can only fight them and I'm going to do resistance. And you're like, oh my God, I love Marva. And then Bix is like, what did you do? Your actions caused the empire to come down on us like a ton of bricks. Ferrix sucks now and we're all oppressed and it's so much scarier and you made everything worse for us. And like, those are the two, you know, main responses that you're going to get towards doing a radical action that is polarizing in those ways. You um, also so have Cyril's it, yeah. mother's reaction, which is the, the mm. uh, where she's like, oh, those troublemakers or whatever kind of deal, which I thought was interesting to include as a third one. Right, right. And she also, kind of, she seems like she sort of brushes them off and looking down on them, but it's also because it's kind of removed from her. Like the other two people are in the planet yeah. where that has happened. I also thought know? it was interesting how Marva is a white woman, um, and her that's her reaction. Now, obviously, she has gone through a lot in her life. And then we have Bix, who is Latina. Obviously, those ethnicities don't exist in Star Wars, but it was a very interesting contrast of... And they also have a different in, difference in age, you know, for Marva. It's, yeah. I've been running in fi- for a long time, and there's nothing else we can do at this point. And for Bix, she's like, hey, uh, I'm just literally trying to live my life here. I am simply trying to vibe. Um, but I thought it was a very interesting us there. They'd both been assaulted by the police, like themselves. Like they both had firsthand experience of that abuse, like just recently, fresh in their minds. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, by the way, love that they're actually have the police looking like police and not stormtroopers everywhere. Like it is powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, because I will say one thing that's very uncomfortable for me, like, you know, you go to Galaxy's Edge, for example, in Disneyland or whatever, and like a fun and cool th- interaction that you have is like, oh, the stormtroopers asking you for your papers. And I'm like, that's not I fun fucking for can't me. Take it. No, I, no, I know. Are you kidding I would, me? <laughs> yeah, that's so fucking offensive. Like, it's I'm so, like, I'm like, literally, there could be, I could be interacting with Jedi. And instead they were like, what if we did a traffic stop? And you're like, what? <laughs> um, so I do love how in this, they're like, yeah, they're cops. Um, <laughs> very clearly. It was great when the uh, when the sequels came out and everyone was like, oh, yeah, well, the First Order, they're neo-Nazis. And people were like, well, and I was like, no, no, th- that's what they <laughs> are because the originals were. Like, that. not just the stormtroopers, like, the the pants that the Imperial officers yeah, the jumpers, wear. I'm like, yeah. Sir, but it gets... It cannot be any clearer. <laughs> there's a there's another layer to this, which is the name Stormtrooper, obviously everyone knows this, is coming from, you know, Nazi soldiers in World War II. Which Nazi soldiers? The ones that were stormtrooping. But in Star Wars universe, the stormtroopers are oppressing civilian populations. So they basically transitioned like a particular kind of marine, space marine, from people that are like winning and fighting battles against other empires into the people that grind regular folks under their heel. And I think mm. that's an absolutely reasonable thing to do with the name Stormtrooper. And it, it highlights the ways in which we think of power, say, as Americans. We think of like our own troops, our own war. There's a sense of it's us, it's ours, it's noble, World War II, we're fighting fascism. But in reality, use of force, whether it's the police or the army or whatever else you're doing, much more closely resembles crushing people under a boot than it does two equal sides having a fight. 
it's very interesting that you said that there's that transition because that is literally the transition that happens from the clone troopers to the stormtroopers. Um, when they are the clone troopers, they are fighting for the Republic and they are fighting the separatist army who are droids, but they are fighting another force at the beginning of, of the empire. The clones themselves are transitioned and that is because they have a chip in their head, literally, but you know, they're made to rapidly age so they can't live that long. So they eventually do have to be replaced by conscripts, um, which is a whole other <laughs> issue, issue of imperialism that is so interesting yeah. to delve into. Um, the the show The Bad Batch is delving into this. It's a great show if they didn't whitewash the clone characters who are based on a man who is Maori, but we can't get into that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is in that transition, they go from we are fighting a war against an opposing force to the stormtroopers are the are what you said like they are the grunts of the empire who are just basically being used as the police. You see in a couple different pieces of media when the clone troopers are made to be like local police and they are they are uncomfortable with that, they are not trained for that. You know, they are a military force who are supposed to be fighting military targets. And that transition is it's interesting that that transition exists within Star Wars itself. Mm-hmm. And I will say in this past episode, I didn't notice this the first time, but someone else did. In the flashback with Clem, uh, Andor's father, um, Cassian's father, um, those troopers that you see that had to be at the beginning of the Empire because those were clone troopers. I, you could tell mm-hmm. by their armor in that time period where they were being made to serve the Empire. Um Versus when we see them now, because he's having this like PTSD flashback where they are stormtroopers. And I didn't notice it at first. Um, but I was like, hmm, it's 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 very interesting to me that they decided to put that in there. Charles, what do you think about the gambit of Polar? Do you feel like the, the responses from Marva, you know, having it make, you know, her even as an older person, like view that um, act of rebellion as something that sort of recruits her into wanting to take action even though she's you know she's isolated she doesn't think she knows the people who did that like she's starting you know she's going to start her own thing perhaps even but like do you think that that's like realistic marva is a delightful character and we figure out that she basically adopted a very troubled young man who was pretty much set to devote himself to crime uh for the rest of his life and she was able to transform him from a severely traumatized young man into nearly a very traumatized young man. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and she did it. You can see the love. You can see the relationships that were built, and they're not biological. When she is rejecting uh, his offer, his request to escape together, she's making the point that you cannot run away from fights for justice. There is no other place to escape to in order to do the historic mission that you're called upon to do. Where you are, the people you're with, the community you're part of is the strongest place that most of us are ever going to be able to fight from. And his Mm -hmm. instinct to run away with his money and do something different, that's the moral dilemma that that the show is going to end on. What do you do when you think you can escape, but you are starting to realize that escape isn't the consistent choice to be made, uh, you know, with Marva, who basically gave him her values. I love that in the last episode we saw he's like, you know, Cassian certainly seems to learn the hard way that you can't escape. The end fire is everywhere. And what an amazing message to end with. Like he gets away with the biggest heist and gets arrested and sentenced to jail for years for literally nothing for just straight up 
police stop mandatory minimum sentencing they really went in with that one (laughs) yeah (laughs) i was like dang they they went they they did both the patriot act and mandatory minimums in one fell sweep by the way the the process that we saw and, and i'm not i'm trying not to do a spoiler here but the process that you saw the way that he was sentenced you see this this assembly line justice system that's made for mm-hmm. efficiency right that is not made up that is literally what was happening in the soviet union at the height of stalinism that is literally mm-hmm. how nazi germany was was operating in those areas in which it had turned civilian populations into stateless people. Um, And it's important to understand that a lot of today's right-wing rhetoric around immigrants and other kinds of people, that's what they aspire to, an assembly line system of dividing the good from the bad so that the good can live in peace and comfort and not have to see what happens. Well, I I mean, that is the way that a lot of immigration court and the way that like the asylum hearings work right now. And I I feel like that was a deliberate. Yes, I didn't know that. Awesome. Because like uh, Diego Luna has talked a lot about like representation, especially for for Latinos. And he I don't know if that that was specifically deliberate to that. But I was like, it had to be. I mean, we have a lot of like, you know, when people are put in free trial jailing forever and stuff like that. But also I was like, that was seemed very much like how, you know, the kangaroo court of our of our fucked up immigration system seemed that's very specific there. I do love when Star Wars is like, yes, I know they're Nazis, but did you know they are also the United States? Yeah, (laughs) that's the piece like which so it's so easy for Americans to not want to see ourselves as the empire, I mean, and yet, like, it has to be reminded, it has to be shown over and over again. Like, I, I, it's one, I, one of the reasons it's great that the cops in this, they even had, like, the mall cops, the private security, to even have the opening of the story centered around private security forces, like, rather than military, is, I mean, that's a choice. That was, that, that was a crazy choice for me, because I was like, usually, when a corporation allows a piece of media to be made... They'll be like, yeah, it's fine if you want to say fascism is bad. But if you say capitalism is bad, that's where we're going to have a problem. But Disney, Disney letting them say that I was like, because specifically in the first couple episodes, their point of like, it's not just a cab. All cops are bastards. It's a cab. All corporations are bastards. And you're like, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. All right. (laughs) And, And they literally make this very specific point of I think they say it. The ISB says it where they're like. Yeah, it's corporations that that are what assists the order that we want to keep. That's a the capitalism is a part of the is one of the boots of the of the empire. And I was like, whoa, okay, we're really getting into that. All right, <laughs> damn. Yeah, yeah. What you know, I um one thing I really thought about with the mall cops, I was struck by the force performance of Alex Ferns playing Sergeant Mosk. I didn't know what he was known for, but I looked it up. I was just struck by his performance. It was um he's known for on the British soap opera EastEnders is playing Trevor Morgan, who is described as Britain's most hated soap opera villain. And as I recall, that's a very much like a working class soap opera. And so I thought it was interesting that you have Cyril, who his affectations are very much trying to come off as upper class, even though you know, we see when he has to go home that he's not upper class. He's certainly not like poor, but they're not upper class. And he should not be commanding any security forces at all because he walks right into traps and has no idea what he's doing. And then you have like reporting to him, you have the sergeant who comes off very much like very much like a working class guy who's sort of like, okay, this is how you do things and speaks with a sort of authority of knowledge about his work. 
and almost feels embarrassed for the upper class guy who gets to wear the the bat the bars and literally has no qualifications. And yet both of them are shown to be completely incapable of um, standing up to, you know, what is essentially like looks to be, you know, a decentralized uprising from the people of Phoenix. Let's talk about the class politics of it's, those interactions. It's very interesting that you that you said that about Cyril because the first thing a lot of people noticed when we saw his home on Coruscant was that it looks like uh like British like he like he lives on a British like a like council a estate public, exactly. public housing yeah yeah and but the funny thing is he does he he's not the lowest of classes like he's high, no. he can he lives in a high enough level Coruscant is basically like a many layered city. He lives on a high enough la- layer that there is still sunlight. Um, but it's like he lives on a council estate. And also, canonically within Star Wars, this is just a cool and fun thing. And you were talking about how like he tries to make himself very or getting to like British class politics here, but like he goes with like the very posh sort of deal. Yeah. And that is the accent from Coruscant and from the core worlds. Um, and usually they can tell if someone is not from the core worlds and there is a bit of xenophobia um, by their accent. But what's interesting is that you have that contrast for Cyril of he has the core world accent. He's trying to have the affect, et cetera, et cetera. But he is from like a lower class and he's like, you know, working for the corpos. I was like, that's an, I was like, that's a very interesting um, contrast. Um, Maybe a commentary on how cops are class traders. Who can say? Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought it was very interesting there you know we haven't done as much talk i I kind of want to just dial return back to talking a little bit more about uh the rebels again um i you know you guys might remember i messaged you guys frantically the other day asking what's your read on skiing because so you know skiing when he's talking with cassian after the heist and saying let's just split the money and run with it i had interpreted it as because his tone and how he said it sounded exactly like the way he sounded when he was sort of like questioning whether so-called, you know, Clem was trustworthy or not. I was like, is he quizzing him again to see if he's real or not? That really was what my gut had thought at the time was that like Skeen isn't actually planning to do that. Skeen is trying to test the loyalty of Cassian yet again. But, um, but that is not how other people uh, are able have read the scene subsequently. I, I saw a lot of people actually read it the way that you did. I, I did not, but I saw a lot of people did. But I, I know that they're wrong, and I'm going to tell you why. Yeah, tell me. We've already established that there's a, so much attention to the psychological underpinnings of people's characters. I'm making the claim that uh, Cass is actually the kind of person who can see immediately the pattern in someone else's behavior. Some people have the ability to just see the truth of the matter instantly. And folks who live in that kind of space are often confronted with other people saying, but I don't see it, so you must be wrong. Well, the stakes are very high. And when you see that and you know you have to act, then you act immediately and worry about the consequences later. And from my perspective, that's what bravery looks like. That's what courage Mm -hmm. looks like. Not the courage of shooting a man down by surprise, But the courage of doing it, knowing that everyone else around you that you care about won't understand it. I, I, it's funny that you said that. But the the 
pattern recognition because I also I made a joke of being like Cassian, my autistic king. Um, <laughs> because there are a couple in that episode in the preparation episode where he's like he's very detail oriented, and we know that that's like put in there narratively to be like, see, this is why he's going to be a great spy. But I think right. the thing that you just said is also that where he's going to be great at it because he is able to make these judgments and read people in a in a very good way wait. and and make those hard choices based on these very quick judgments as well. But Claudia, Claudia, here's the thing. You called him an autistic king and I'm not challenging you doing that. But I want to add an option. What if he's hypervigilant as a result of abuse as a child? Oh, absolutely. That's not the absolutely. same as neurodiversity, but it, but it can look very similar. So this is a guy who's like, oh shit, you're one of those people. And he instantly knows what to do. There's no choice. Yeah. And and I think it also goes back to like, shout out to Tony Grillroy constantly referencing Rogue One, his own work. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, he was brought in as one of the many script doctors on it. There were a lot of people who worked on it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, where he says, he's like, I've had to do things that were make hard decisions and things that people don't necessarily agree with. I mean, his first, the first scene in, his first scene in Rogue One is him having to shoot a guy. Um, kind of not not similarly, not the same situation as here, but it's very showing not only like he's willing to sacrifice, but showing that bravery. I think it's just an interesting way to like have a leading man character to have this kind of different sub- subversive kind of bravery. I'm like, excellent, amazing, incredible. <laughs> I, you know, I, I feels like the consensus has been that Skeen really was proposing to take the money and run. But it's interesting, if, the, if that is in fact the case, it's interesting that they give him one of the most powerful lines in the series, of course, which was, the axe forgets, but the tree remembers. And then there's a long pause and he says, our turn to do the chopping. Holy fuck. Well, yeah. one, I knew that that was a reference to something. I was so convinced of it. And I looked it up and it actually is the name of a book of poetry. And that book of poetry is not super famous. I'm sure that the writer, you know, Gilroy and crew are, are referencing this book of poetry. I'm sure I did not know that book of poetry. The line is like that attuned that I had felt like this was this like iconic, you know, reference. And it, and it was something I hadn't heard before, but it just like lives, it lives in you so real that it feels like you must have seen it. It must be from something. Is there anything about where it comes from that you could mention? Like that the, that the, the, poet lived through something or this is what's killing me is i have no th- so the poet's name is aken ose and i have no information about this person at all from googling them um which is very strange to me so it's wow. possible that yeah. they predominantly write in a different language maybe and maybe that's why i can't find anything about them on the yeah on the googles maybe well, potentially I, wanna, I wanted to add something here again from our timeline that relates to this so there's mm-hmm. a, a very famous book written by um, a representative of the Polish underground in World War II. This is the, the secret state, the group of people that were maintaining their resistance inside and outside of, of Poland and claiming to be the real government while the, the Germans were occupying it. Mm-hmm. So he volunteered to be sent into a concentration camp in Poland. He volunteered in order to document what was going on. And this is before the gas chamber stage. So we're talking really brutal, savage shit before they made the system more efficient. So he sees this and then he's sent abroad and he goes to, uh, he, ma- he makes his way to uh, London where he meets with two representatives of the Bund, the Jewish Socialist Labor Organization that was part and participating in the Polish government in exile. And he meets with them and he says, listen, uh, you probably know all this stuff, but I wanted to tell you I'm, I'm 
touring the capitals of, uh, of the allies to tell them what's happening. And I wanted to know, is there a message that you want me to deliver as well? He's basically saying, I'm recognizing you as speaking on behalf of Polish Jewry, or at least a large part of it. And I want to convey your message. What should I tell them? And the two men, they turned to him and they say, here's our plan for poisoning the water supply of Hamburg and other major cities. And the guy, he's like, what are you talking about? That's madness. And they say, you think we don't know? You think we don't know it's madness? Now you tell me if you have noticed anything that would get the Germans to stop massacring our people, to stop killing us wholesale, that does not go through us doing it to them. And the book, you know, which is a real history book, it's not a novel, sort of, uh, it doesn't end on that note, but that sequence ends there with the later addition that those two men did in fact commit suicide. And that's the madness. That's the madness of our world. And how to escape it is a central challenge. How do we have a fight? How do we do this without blowing ourselves up and killing everyone in the process? I will be very interested to see your thoughts on the one and only Sagarera when he does. He will mm, be appearing in this show sure. because I'm going to admit I have not loved the way they have used his character in Star Wars before. Star Wars' politics of involving this very radical idea has not been good. Whether like one, like you see that contrast. Yeah. In yeah, the thing about mm-hmm. Sagarera is they call his group the partisans because they are the ones who are like, yeah let's blow something up to kill an, an imperial moth or something like that. I'm very scared of how he's going to be portrayed in this show, but I'd be very interested to see your opinions on him. And that's kind of the the push and pull he has and the conflict he has with Mon Mothma, who is also right. very much focused on in this show. Um, we haven't talked about her yet. I really want <laughs> yeah. to talk about Mon Mothma. And yeah. I definitely think the most recent episode did a lot of work sort of... Oh. Sh- huh. Shows like this often treat political and i don't mean like like star wars i mean outside of star wars like treat women political figures with such disdain and condescension that um you know i'm i was i felt like it was really cool in this that like they sort of set it up like okay she's not willing to make this risk or the other and she also says like no one is taking a bigger risk than me which of course we know is not actually true but we do understand why she feels that way or at least i understand why she feels that way even if it's not true but you know there's a question of like oh like you know that there's going to be memes ragging on her like for you know being a limousine liberal or whatever the hell or and like you know, she's she's someone who's trying to play a significant, me- using her powers, like, to play a meaningful role in the, re- the rebellion. And, like, you know, I think you get a little bit of a whiff of, you no, know, she understands this shit is bullshit and frustrating just as much as everybody else does. And she just sits in a different role in the inside-outside, as we would call it, in organizing the inside-outside strategy of like fighting and she's realized that the inside strategy that she's been playing, i.e. like serving in traditional politics is not actually mattering. And so she's actually using her status as a quote unquote inside political insider for the left, so to speak, as cover to keep them from thinking that she's actually doing real radical action, which I thought was a really interesting um, character development for her. She'd be perfect for the working families party. (laughs) Uh, yeah, <laughs> she's 
she is a very interesting character um, because what Star Wars vacillates back and forth with her is that she's like, oh, yeah, she's like a neolib, even though you're like, no, she isn't. She is helping to fund and eventually, you know, is one of the leaders of a militarized resistance. What? Um, not, not being said, there are layers of privilege with her and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, yeah. The thing about her and so she's not the only one doing this. Her little coalition also involves Bail Organa, who is uh, Princess Leia's, Leia's adoptive yeah. mother, and his wife, who's the queen on Alderaan. And they also do this thing where they they also use their like progressive politics, whatever, as a cover. There's actually in one of the books, um, they have these dinner parties, kind of like what you see in the show. They have the, these dinner parties as covers for things. What's interesting about them is that them in addition to our icon or our who is the moment padme in you know the end of the rebellion at uh, the end of the republic and the beginning of the of the empire and it's a deleted scene actually in revenge of the sith which is when they basically found the rebellion together and they found this they talk about it in this episode um her little group of separatists what they call which basically they're like they're members of the republic um and they're like oh it seems as if the separatists were kind of right and now the Republic is doing this crazy shit with this empire. We need to start to do something and gather all the people who are into like who are ideologically with us. Um, and that's kind of the group that Mon Mothma is referencing. And Padme, who then dies, is a part of is a part of founding that. Mon Mothma is a part of founding that. Bail Organa is a part of, of founding that. So she's always been doing this from the jump. Um, and so the conversation that she has with Luthen, where he's like you know, where she's kind of scared. I didn't really interpret that as, you know, she's not willing to do what needs to be done because she has already done some pretty dangerous stuff and pretty risky yeah. stuff. It's or not just for her, but for other people. Um, it's because she has literally been in it from the beginning and she's like, doesn't want to risk everything. Uh, and, and it's more of a strategic thing for her. She's just a very interesting character to me. And it's, very it's very interesting to see what they're doing with her character because yeah people you know I, I liked how they put a line in the sand in this episode to be like no she she's not she's not like an, a neolib or something like it has been a front the whole time <laughs> like that, yeah, that I mean, to anybody thing. who's calling like, her a neolib you literally don't know what a neolib is because at worst yeah. she's liberal at yeah. worst liberal liberal and neolib are not the same thing i don't know how to tell you this I, i'm not a liberal i'm a left yeah. It's not the same thing. There's some wonderful secret history here. So yeah. uh, at least two major revolutions were sparked by dinner parties. The use mm. of the dinner party as a way for people to openly agitate against the regime was used both in France and Russia uh, before the revolutions because it was a way for basically people to say, okay, we're not allowed to have political parties. We're not allowed to have political gatherings. We're just having dinner. And then, of course, at the dinner, people would speak in direct or veiled ways about exactly, you know, what they wanted and aspired to. So later, when you have the famous Mao quote, revolution is not a dinner party, all I can think of is, oh, my God, dinner parties are fomenters of revolution. That's how you do it mm -hmm. if you're smart. And, you, and it's how you build community. I yeah. mean, that's not what she's doing. She's using it as espionage. But she does. I mean, what do you do, Charles? What do you think about her move to try to recruit her old childhood friend to confide in him, like in that environment, in that moment. She did what she had to do. It was risky and it paid off. And I think the, the logic here is that there are things about other people that you understand when you're young, when you've been through some stuff, 
that cannot be completely erased. And what she mm. does is she she first interrogates him to figure out, is that part of you that I remember, is it still there? She literally provokes him into expressing his opposition to her. And then she's like, good. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. It was an amazing scene. Yeah. I said this earlier to you, Alana, that like my favorite uh, um, arcs of the Clone Wars are the political ones that everybody else finds are boring. And there's one where, you know, the first couple seasons of the Clone Wars, you're like, yeah, we got Jedi, we were fighting, whatever. And then we get to this one where it's Padme, who is a senator, teaching Ahsoka about politics. And it ends with this extremely creepy scene with almost Palpatine almost like looking into the camera where he's like, Padme wins this round of chess, basically. And he's like, oh, he's like, oh, she's dangerous. She is something I have to keep an eye on. And it was and I always appreciated that because it it. Number one showed how Palpatine isn't just dangerous because he's a Sith Lord, but dangerous because of politics, and that also that mm -hmm. Padme is Padme is just as dangerous as Anakin was, or something like that. But what yeah. I appreciated in this show was that they did the same with Mon Mothma, where they were like, "Yeah, she's not just like doing the right thing and smart. She's she's slaying. I fear, uh, <laughs> like she's <laughs> she's very she's very strategic about it, and, and not just not that sorry, not that she's just strategic about it, but that like." she's almost devious but that that doesn't have to be a bad thing which i also like that like we have her against deidra who's the isb person um and i was like that's that's, that's, that's the uh, cia of the empire yeah the C yeah, yeah i would say cia slash fbi of the empire oh, almost because okay. it's both internal and external girl boss yeah, it's yes. kind of, it's <laughs> what kind an amazing of character. War of the girl bosses in this kind of yeah. thing. Um, white woman Wednesday, if you will, of like <laughs> they're like, what we have two white women who are quite devious. What does that look like on two different sides of the two different sides of the of the aisle here? And I yeah. I liked how, you know, you were saying earlier with female characters often in that kind of role, they're they're like, oh, they they can't be wives and mothers and they can't be this and they're they're devious, whatever. And in this you're kind of like, Yeah, she's kind of cool. And it Yes, she has issues in her family, but that's because her husband is clearly a conservative dick. Um. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the world where Abu Ghraib was run by women up and down the chain, all the way to the very top and the very bottom, it makes perfect sense. Well, you oh. know, but it's also just like I, you can see, like the um, the invest the woman who's working for the security forces, like. There's something subtle from an earlier scene with her that it sounds like she is not from the ruling class. That she might yeah. be more middle class and is having to prove herself against these upper class people who got their jobs because of who their parents are. Yeah. And then you have Mon Mothma, who's clearly like posh as fuck. I mean, it's possible that she grew up middle class and married posh, but I suspect she's been posh her whole life. They, and it's is her still family's money that. Oh, that she's talking about. It's her family's money. Oh, her family's money. Yeah. Right. Okay. When she said it was her family's money, she made her family, not her husband's family. Okay. But um, but yeah, like, and she's actually like the one who's, you know, supporting the rebels. And it's it's sort of an interesting juxtaposition. Um, you know, I actually got one of the moments that took me a second is like when you saw, you know, Val, who was like the, the, the squadron rebel squad leader, as it were on the ground for the action. Um, you know, when you first see her on course, Coruscant, I almost didn't recognize her for a second, even though she has the same hair color. It's not like she put on a wig or anything. Like she just looked so different in this different context. And it made me really wonder like, you know, like, what is everybody's connection there? I, I personally I, love the choice that the show made of having um, 
Luthen Rael, who, yeah, you know, the Skarsgård's character, be an antiquities dealer as his cover. Um, because it makes me think about how the antiquities dealer is sort of like reselling the history that has been pillaged and he's recontextualizing it when he's selling it to people and trying to, sh- he's like showing them like, this is what the history looked like prior to the empire, but in the most like upper crust way possible, right? Cause he's not teaching it to school children. He's like selling it to the rich and that that's his cover for being an actual like revolutionary. Uh, there, so one thing that a lot of people have noticed, and this is a theory that I have started to believe myself, is that Vel might be his daughter. Because at first I went, why is she, like, she just did a huge heist. Why did she go back to Coruscant? Like, mm-hmm. of all places, they could have met her, I guess, to meet with his assistant or whatever. And she seemed, I guess, comfortable dressing up or that kind of thing. But also the first conversation that they have doesn't seem like, you know, comrades it very much seems like she is having a conversation with her father mm-hmm. um and he where and she's like like why else would she trust it? unless they are literally been comrades forever or something like there there have been a couple and this was the episode where i went oh maybe she is his daughter like because he also seemed genuinely worried about them not not just because like it could expose him if he if it goes wrong or you know or that he genuinely cares about them like he seemed personally worried about what occurred and i was like you know why is she like she kind of did, did the same thing like we see him like change his outfit and that kind of stuff and like she has like changed her outfit and whatever and like why is she on coruscant why do they talk to each other in the in a very different way than the rest of the comrades talk to each other and i was like oh maybe maybe that maybe that's it and that would be very interesting if we could explore that if like okay if they're from the upper crust of uh I think also because Cinta is her girlfriend and and uh, his assistant is like, well, Cinta's doing her job. What are you, his daughter? What are you doing? Um, mm. I think that I I went, hmm, maybe that is true. Um, so yeah, I, I I just I couldn't stop thinking about that. But also <laughs> another another white woman girl boss in this. <laughs> But I mean, you know, as much as obviously like Cinta is like the reason why that heist didn't completely fall apart because Val completely understandably and Lord knows I'm not saying I would do any better, like had a last moment like crisis and like thought she might be able to do it. Like she's fucking, she she fucking showed up and tried it, you know? Um, um, I don't know. Charles, do you have any thoughts about these two sort of influential people in the rebellion with their sort of upper crust cover lives and cover stories? Well, I, I, I will point out that the, the history of left-wing rebellions is full of people who defected from the upper class. Uh, that includes people like you know, Lenin, includes Marx, it includes uh, Che Guevara, it includes Fidel Castro. I mean, it's hard to throw a rock at a roster of revolutionaries without hitting someone who defected from a higher class. It's very normal. What's interesting is how this, uh, the series never positions the people as the agent, even when mm-hmm. we see all of those, uh, all the quote unquote, uh, indigenous inhabitants of, uh, of the, of, uh, the planet, um, organizing around their ceremony and, you know, but they're not the agents of change in any yeah. sense of the word. And the ruling class representatives are basically observing how difficult it is for quote unquote, the people to rise up and it will, I guess you're going to need our help. And they kind of step in and take charge and exert influence. 
that dynamic is never going to go away because it is precisely those with the most privilege who have the most capacity as individuals to play particular kinds of roles. And a series that, that sort of takes away the people, mass formation, do we see a labor union? Do we see hmm. civic organizations? Do we see political parties? I mean, all of that has been whitewashed. I don't know if that's Gilroy or if it's Disney, but if I was making a series about revolutions, about resistance, I would have prioritized the people at least as much as the elite traders. I, uh, this is another plug for Star Wars Rebels um, because, <laughs> and it's an interesting contrast. And this might be maybe to show like the differences in the early rebellion versus later, because one thing mm -hmm. that's very much covered in Star Wars Rebels is that, so in Star Wars Rebels, we are following an ensemble cast of one rebel cell and they are based on a planet. They are based on Lothal. They're focused on Lothal's liberation. And the story is how not only is the Alliance growing around them, but how they eventually join the Alliance because the show is very much localized. It's very much about their individual community resistance um, and down from like, you know, our young hero who's like literally he is space Aladdin. They, he literally calls himself a street rat from Lothal. Yes, there are like larger battles with the rest of the rebellion, but the climax of the series ends up being on Lothal and about Lothal's liberation. And it's very interesting to see in this kind of like, well, some of the rebel cells were just like going to random places that, you know, had nothing to really do with each other. Eventually it becomes, these are local, these are local cells that get recruited. Um, right. That the revolution is at home. It's not somewhere yeah, else. Yeah. And that so is, and that is literally, that is the central tenet of Star Wars Rebels is that the revolution is at home. And we have our, we have our little Jedi character also, Ezra, who the thing that radicalizes him initially, other than his upbringing initially, is the first mission they run is literally doing mutual aid, finding food for people who live in a shanty town. And that's like the first mm. thing you see in that show. So it's, I think it's a very interesting contrast with Andor where it's, we are doing little, little, little fetch missions, not really connected to anybody's community. What does that mean? And I, I think and I hope the fact that we have gone back to Ferrix a couple times that means that like Cassian I hope that Cassian's community which we have shown a couple times will come more into play that way looking at them in the show I was really struck by on Aldani um you know like one of the things we hear happening as a result of the heist is the empire declares that people will no longer be able to have ethnic celebrations um, if they are in any way ever connected to any kind of uprising. And, you know, you think about how the uh, the people of Aldani, who already were being subjected to the eradication of their culture because Empire was, like, basically building bars to, like, distract them, you know, from being able to go on their on their religious pilgrimage. Like, the government, like, the Empire really is, like, we made bars so they would get too drunk to finish climbing the hill. Um you know their their cultural heritage is getting is getting erased um, because they are being blamed for or assumed to be responsible for the outside agitators with the rebellion showing up and doing their action, hiding it amongst them. And the whole time I heard about how they were going to be concealing this heist in the midst of somebody else's ethnic ceremony. I, the whole time I'm like, this just reminds me. A little bit much of when you get the anarchist bros who decide to throw stuff at cops while standing right next to the members of my immigrant-led community-based organization who are like really can't afford to get arrested because they'll be deported. Like, no, that's exactly that. yeah. 
Well, uh, I'm sorry, Ilana, but we're in a business of polarizing. We have to provoke <laughs> the regime into strong action. And if, if it takes a few people to be innocently subjected to harsh repression and deportation, well, I know how to amplify that to my advantage. <laughs> I mean, and the, 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 the point is just like, who's, who, who gets the agency to decide, you know, like the, the people who are in the rebels have taken on uh, personal risk. They've, they've chosen to risk their lives and safety to do a certain thing, but the people of Eldani did not consent, right? And so it's complicated, especially because the people of Eldani are clearly like a religious and ethnic minority who are going through like cultural eradication, basically. So that's not me saying they shouldn't have done this, but it's it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting they connected also with the character, like because it's Mon Mothma who's the person who's like, are those risks worth it? And it's Luthen, the person who literally his front is Antiquities. You know, using yeah, using the tools yeah. of cultural genocide. Um, and he's the person who's like, Well, we gotta do, you know, this is what we have to do. And she's like, Really? Is it? And like this idea of a cultural genocide is very, very prevalent there. I feel like it references a lot back to Rogue One as well, because in Rogue One we're on that planet of Jeddah, which is a is a religious is a is a very it's a religious city where people go for a pilgrimage and you know what the death star does is they they do a literal instant cultural genocide there you have almost this this group being brought together by by this and you have the partisans who have stationed themselves there they're not from there uh and who are doing some of their stuff on this in this uh culturally important place and you have this thing of like, is it worth it to blow up the holy city? Is it worth it or is it not? Because these are, you know, innocent people who are coming to worship religions that are being actively stomped out by the empire. Um, Tony Gilbride, I see you have you have three stories. <laughs> hmm. But, you know, actually, this reminds me also, like, in contrast to what we see in the third episode of the show where the people of, of Ferrix, when they see the police coming to oppress and how to arrest people, the city comes together and makes a decision that the city rejects, the people of the city reject the empire. The, the visual and sound of them banging on the, the piping and the metal containers, especially in the city that is clearly like being used for industrial, it's about, you know, it's about industrial production. It's like a wrecking, go it's like a wrecking, uh, and salvage almost in some places the work that they're doing and um, seeing the community like using the physical space that they're in to reject the um, to reject the empire uh, like it actually being a part of that I, I had could have sworn that I saw something online where somebody was talking specifically about that being a thing that was done by Irish yeah. people during the troubles yeah, I cannot find and including I looked in I, the Irish media's coverage of the show and didn't see anyone in Ireland mentioning it. So, guys, if you've seen that specifically, do let me know. But we definitely have other traditions of banging on pots and pans. Charles, if you want to talk about Castro at all, I invite you <laughs> just to do that, so. Just that um, there is, in fact, a tradition. I'm pretty sure it comes from Latin America, from uh, yeah. countries that were experiencing uh, military dictatorship. One of the safest ways to protest was by people leaning out the window and banging their pots and pans. And the people doing the banging would be mothers and grandmothers, people that the regime would have a difficult time targeting on an individual basis. Um, later, this gets transformed into going into the street with pots and pans when it's safer to do so. 
But the point is that the resistance that is often the most effective is going to be the kind that is easiest to do without risking yourself. And when we look at the rebel strategies in, 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 the, in Andor, we never see examples of that. Yeah, there's no entry point for, there's no, there's no easy entry point for the ladder of engagement, as you would say in organizing, right? You have Marva um, going immediately. I mean, like, look, I don't know what bold step Marva might be about to take or not. Like maybe, who knows? Maybe she has a high aspiration for what action she'll take and then she'll, she won't feel like she's actually able to do it. But yeah, they don't really, that's the problem with something being like a, a highly secret, decentralized, hard to access. But again, I understand why it's built that way. Network is that there's a lack of clear, straightforward places to plug in to do things. Um, it helps explain. So, yeah. Go ahead. It, it helps explain why when a major political change is caused by or led by or organized by a secretive group doing illegal stuff, the regime that follows is often not going to be very democratic because you, you right. basically have like large numbers of people trained in violence who've already accepted as a condition that they have to do what they're told without full understanding. Once you mm. got that going, sky's the limit. That's really great. That's a very interesting thing because that has been kind of my main fear with when Star Wars covers the, you know, post Return of the Jedi era, which they haven't been doing as much. They talk about the New Republic a little bit in The Mandalorian and stuff like that, where they're like, we just want to, you know, set up the Republic again and let different, you know, planets have their own, uh, you know, thing. But they kind of set up these former rebel pilots as like cops. And I'm like, one, I guess they could be making a point here, that point that you talked about. That That is always my discomfort is always I'm where I'm like, you could really dig into that idea. However, I do not have the confidence in Disney or Star Wars to hmm. dig into that idea in a way that the American public will not take in the exact wrong way. Um, <laughs> that, and that has been my whole issue with the, with the sequel era because that's a whole thing. Alana, you were saying like there aren't a lot of entry points to the rebellion like it's not as easy. You have to be recruited by somebody or whatever. And it's, it's in Andor, we're seeing it through the spy thriller perspective. So this is somebody who yes. has to be recruited by a point of contact. When I think about, I'm so sorry that I keep bringing up Rebels. I'm so sorry, but I just do because I like it because I like it. Um, in Rebels, one interesting thing is that, you know, you have this one Rebel cell. They're doing it as, as mutual aid. That's their whole thing. But you also have Ezra Bridger, who's the main character. He's an orphan. And he finds out that his parents, their form of like, doing rebel action it wasn't connected to anybody else they did like basically like am rebel radio basically where they would take over transmissions basically counteract imperial propaganda and that was their thing and it wasn't that they were like joining a wider thing or even organizing that much in their community but like that for most people it was more rebel actions than rebel organizing it wasn't until there were people like mon mothma bail organa and People like Cassian, even, who he becomes a fulcrum. That's why they call him a fulcrum uh, of the, that kind of point of connection, who decide to connect all these people uh, and go, what if we what if we created the Voltron of, of, of revolutions um, <laughs> kind of deal? Because most of these people are just they're just doing some form of resistance on their own planet. Um, I uh, there's a couple of things that I want to go back and hit, like just in terms of stuff I want to say really quickly. But I before we wrap um, I would like to, I know, you know, Charles, you had some thoughts about what, what, what do you feel like the revolution and the rebels should be doing differently moving forward, uh, from what we've seen so far. I'm not asking you to predict what the show is going to do next, 
But what do you feel like would be your advice to the rebellion in this moment? It feels to me that the, that the strategy that's being outlined of provoking the empire into harsh repression in order to radicalize the population, I get it. Like this is, this is not an insane proposition, but they're not giving any attention to all the ways in which this manifests as everyday resistance. I think mm-hmm. about how in, um, in, uh, I think it was in Holland when they were imposing the Jewish star, the mm-hmm. king or one of the members of the royalty put on a Jewish yeah. star and many people did likewise. There are, I'm thinking about the fact that in Nazi Germany, as late as 1944, there was a demonstration of Aryan German wives protesting to release their Jewish husbands from concentration camp. We don't see the examples in which everyday resistance can exist, uh, not safely, but can actually be real under those circumstances. And instead we see an empire so, so fantastically strong that no one can do anything ever without getting immediately arrested or killed. That is a lie. Empires are brittle. They snap. They crumble. Their factions are divided. Their bureaucracy is inefficient. Their decision makers are driven by ego and careerism. They are brittle. And that is not emphasized enough. I think, uh, I know a lot of people are always tired of seeing the Jedi, but one thing that I find very interesting that they do is often in this time of Star Wars where we don't have a lot of the Jedi and where the Empire, specifically, they repress any mention of it as, I mean, it was only 20 mm-hmm. years and there and there's people who think it's fake. Um, you know, any wow. mention of the, any mention of the four, I mean, when you meet Han Solo for the first time, he's like, I think it's an old, you know, religion that doesn't exist when like 20 years ago there were Jedi running around. Right. Um, you know, like his parents would have seen that themselves. Oh, he, w- he would have seen it. He was old enough. Um, mm-hmm. That that being said, there weren't enough Jedi that maybe he would have met one, but that kind of thing. What you find in is that any mention of the Force, any mention, and that's why also the, the, the destruction of Jedi is such a big deal. And also one thing that I love in these stories like Rogue One like and, and or about non-Force sensitive people and belief um, mm-hmm. is in both Cassian, he has the kyber crystal from Luthen, and then uh, we have Jin, who uh, has a kyber crystal as well. These are things they have to hide because not only are they worth a lot of money, because they're worth a lot of money because they're illegal. Because anything mm. involving the Force, involving Jedi who have experienced a cultural genocide, basically, is outlawed. But it, in Star Wars, it represents hope or whatever. But it, it eventually represents hope because it represents a resistance. And so, a lot of times. In Star Wars, in this period, it actually there's a uh, it happens in um, in the Obi Wan show actually, which occurs like five years before this. Um, people who still believe in the Force, still believe in Jedi or whatever, they keep that to themselves uh, very much. And if like when someone says like "May the Force be with you" or something, that is like one of those like small moments of of resistance, and that's a thing like the rebellion starts to like, they say it amongst themselves a lot because like it's, it becomes almost a representation of these small acts of resistance in that they're like, you know, we're going to believe in this thing that the empire decided to, to stamp out. Um, and it eventually becomes like, that's why Luke Skywalker becomes such an icon or whatever. Cause they're like, see, they were not able to stamp out the Jedi. They can't stamp out everybody else. Um, and it becomes it, it becomes a thing of like whenever the force is mentioned, whenever anything is mentioned, that those are those small moments of resistance. So that's why, uh, you know, 
it becomes kind of a, a powerful calling card. Um, and the and people like if there's any mention of like someone believing in the force, whatever, like they will send people out to to tamp that shit down. Um, wow. Yeah, and a, well, a big part of the Obi Wan series was that like the Jedi have to hide, and they're very scared of hurting the people around them because y- you will get arrested if you are, you know, known to be harboring someone who is force sensitive or someone who is a Jedi. Because if they're force sensitive. You know, they could have been born, whatever. So I think like that's why I don't I never get sick of that because I'm like it is inherently tied with this these ideas of small rebellion in Star Wars is the magic of it. Uh, it almost hmm. becomes symbolic, which is, you know, which is which is why also I find the rebels really, really cool because you have characters who are force sensitive and then it becomes less about like their connection to the force and more about their connection to rebellion. But yeah, the idea that you were talking about, Charles, um, it exists when you're talking about the Jedi. And I think that's cool, but it's also very sad. And it makes me very, very sad. <laughs> that's interesting that that's the space where that can exist in yeah. Star Wars is around yeah. magic specifically. Yeah. But yeah. In, in just, just a second, say in a universe where midi-chlorians are unevenly distributed and where a ubermension small group can basically dominate these things to exert power over everyone else. Is it not equality and justice to suppress it? That it that is the that's the propaganda that, that they use. Well, basically, they kill all the Jedi in Order sixty six, and that is how they um, how they justify it to the rest of the to the rest of their universe. Is like, yeah, you know, they they went up against the Republic, and they're very dangerous, and you know, they're more powerful than the rest of us. And a lot of people were like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. They're dangerous, um, and that was that is how they kind of justified that. Um, that being said, there are force sensitive people who are not Jedi, but well, yeah, yeah <laughs> challenges like- with a mutant <laughs> metaphor, right? Like you identify with this like persecuted minority, but then it's also like I mean they do have yeah. laser eyes, so yeah. it's complicated. Um, yeah, that's why it's important to also have real diversity. <laughs> yeah, which is also um, they they say that about the Mandalorians as well when they're talking a lot about them with religion as well. Laughing about the, about the Mandalorians and their attachment to the helmet—it's basically a yarmulke. It's a kippa. We yeah. wear the helmet as a reminder of where we come from, the struggles we face, and we will never remove it except under certain circumstances. You know, I'm thinking. You mean like you know when you sleep or when you're dead? Because other than that, you're supposed to be wearing that dumb hat. Um, just a lot of interesting connections there. Uh, thinking wow. of the Mandalorians as basically religious fundamentalists is quite a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Religious uh, fundamentalists, yeah. They're actually yeah. taking care of people at least though, but yes. Um, so, okay, so my wrapping things up piece of it here was sort of, you know, twofold. I don't want to overlook that we also just had a really well-constructed, tightly edited heist scene but that's also very much not a romanticized heist scene because you see people continually failing throughout it. Um, it's not so many of the the better heists that you see um, in terms of shot construction. Everybody is like, everybody's a specialist who's a specialist at their own particular part of the case and everybody kind of pulls through and it works like, you know, like it's part of the joys of like Ocean's 11 and Ocean's 8 and those kinds of movies, right? And in the heist we have here, it's a really well-constructed heist, but people aren't perfect. Things don't necessarily go as planned. Um, they go, they go, they go together well enough that like the the central goal is achieved. But uh, you know, a lot of people die. A lot of our our our, our rebel cell die in the process. Um, so I, I thought it was it was sort of meaningful to see that get constructed 
um, well without making it seem like people are just going to completely achieve it perfectly and flawlessly. I don't know if people want to reflect on the heist at all, but... It was clearly a parallel to Rogue One. I was like, yeah, I, mm. I know what you're referencing here, my guy, especially since most of them die. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, I expected all point. of them to die, to be honest, uh, except for Cassian. Um, and, you know, in Rogue One, they're going in without, at first, they go in without the support of the rest of the rebellion. And they're just like, whoever the hell volunteered. Um, and they're just, they're like, okay, you can do this and you can do that. All right, let's go. Um, with this and with this, they're kind of like, yeah, we have no redundancies and we got like one guy for each thing and hope for the best. Um, but they also, what was interesting about this scene is also like they do some things that are like strategically kind of stupid. Also, like they show their faces to the people and they're like, so you're going to have to kill them all. Right. Cause they all know what you look like and you've been covert for like months. And I was like, mm-hmm. did you guys not think that one over? I was like, what are you guys going to do now? <laughs> like, I, hello um it, yeah it felt very like felt very real for a second so i wanted to just to close my thoughts about the young comrade so um but it, so it isn't just that you see the young comrade um nemic working on which oh my god what a yiddish name he has right um that is a yiddish name if i've ever heard one not only are people like seeing value in him writing a manifesto you see him working out his beliefs out loud in conversation with or at less conversation with and more conversation at uh Cassian when he's analyzing like what is the role of mercenaries in a revolution and I appreciate that the conclusion he draws in the end is at least what I think the conclusion should have been which is that like we should use all the when he says like we should use all the tools available to us um you know it's like yeah you know, I mean, if you're having a, a mercenary who has a high propensity to have additional collateral damage and like rape victims and stuff, that's a different story. But to bring in somebody like Clem, sure, you know, a non a non sociopathic mercenary, that's great. And it's so rare for these political thinkers in these sort of mainstream genre media to be correct. They love having them be like, you know, right and I either I too idealistic or to this or to that. And he's, he's saying it, it's all real. Even more so we get actual usable leftist analysis of the world as it exists. Like um, he explains to Andor, the pace of repression outstrips our ability to understand it. And that is the real trick of the imperial thought machine. It's easier to hide behind 40 atrocities than a single incident. That's a very accurate description of the operating of the Trump administration. And I've already seen it get shared a lot online. Charles. I'm thinking of his behavior as an example of someone who has a bunch of ideas he's passionate about. He believes in them. But rather than just trying to impose them on his surroundings, he's saying no. My ideas might be wrong. They need to be refined. They need to be subject to the ruthless criticism of people I just met. Because if (laughs) I don't do that, there might be a flaw that never gets uncovered until it's too late. And I'm just thinking, I know people who do that and they're almost entirely autistic or neurodiverse. And the neurotypical Mm. people are like, if you believed in yourself, why would you do that? I, I, I just, I love the fact that, and I feel like this, and it wasn't just like, oh, they mentioned it once. Like it becomes a like a 
a very key part of Cassian's story because Vel is like, he wanted you to have it, take it. And it's clearly yeah. going to be a uh, a push for him. I saw a lot of people theorizing there's a line that Cassian says that eventually they attribute to Jin several times. I'm like, yeah, that's because he said it to her. It was his line. Um, this line in Rogue One that he says is rebellions are built on hope. Um, yep which is so different from his ideology that we're seeing in this, in this show. And I'm like, I bet that that's in there. I bet that that's mm. in Nimic's little manifesto and he's going to get it from there. Um, I love it. Um, but I, I was crazy because I was like, oh, they use the actual word manifesto. They're not, I was like, they are clearly not scared of the, the mean little comic skate bitches on YouTube anymore. Wow. We said it. We said the words. All right. Um, I just thought that I thought it was very interesting that they were very specific about it. And that also it is a key part of the narrative. It wasn't just like a little thing. I was like, wow, they're this is something that is really challenging people who are watching it. And usually, you know, sometimes franchise media doesn't really do that. So, yeah. And I and the th- and there's definitely like Nemec has this idea of like Cassian as this like potential pro like fellow proletarian intellectual who will join the radical cause. Of course he wanted to give it to, to, to Andor. We do this thing on our podcast called our star Wars gender of the week. And I believe that was two people's (laughs) gender that week was the communemic manifesto. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I did not know his last name is Nemec. His full name is Karis Nemec. Didn't know that, but. Well, the important part is obviously a nice Yiddish boy, um, which we need on account of our absolutely devastating, anti-Semitic mother figure of the show who, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's an amazing performance, but like, yeah, like I like what your friend said about it. Like it's like painful, but we'll let you do it. Yeah. I was, uh, some people were like, Oh, this is the immigrant mother experience of any ethnicity. Cause I was like on one side of my family is full of Italian immigrants. And I was like, wow, I really relate. Oh, that's so funny because uh, Charles and I both read that as like being specifically Jewish, but like, yeah, okay. And and, and, any, any immigrant community, like, I was like, wow, this is so relatable. And she kind of did the, like, she didn't even do the, like, oh, I'm sorry. Here's some cut fruit. Not even that. There was nothing. (laughs) There was none of that. I was waiting to find out that his brother's a doctor. Oh my God. (laughs) Your brother's a doctor. Would you believe in you? Disappointment to me and my family. I I gotta know. I gotta know who your outfit is great though. Oh, like, yeah. Her outfit is really great. She's like totally like living the best mid 60s, um, you know, awesome magazine look style. So like her her brooch and her sh- her shirt, like you can see where her son gets his fashion sense, even though she tells him that he's doing it wrong. He's definitely getting it from her. I also yeah. like to to like what's interesting is we don't have a lot of mothers in Star Wars. And this show has two True. mothers. They're foils of each other. And obviously, Cyril is supposed to be a foil of Cassian. We see both of their basically childhood bedrooms. And one thing I noticed was that Cassian has all the stuff from his childhood. He has a little stuffed bantha. Like he has mm-hmm. the thing, the the blow dart thing that he grew up with. He has all these things. You look at Cyril's childhood bedroom and he has action figures in his, which are clearly of stormtroopers. They might be of death troopers, actually. You can't really tell. Um which is so interesting that like Cassian, the differences in how they are and how like we were looking at their home lives and their mothers, that is not a thing we normally cover in Star Wars. Um, right. Star Wars is usually a lot about found family um, or found family, literal or figurative. Um, 
Um, but I thought that was really interesting is like also with the contrast of Cyril's mother versus Marva, who mm-hmm. has this absolutely heart wrenching moment in this episode, which is also I think Cassian's, you know, sometimes a, a revolution, a reason to enter a revolution can be personal kind of moment. I think that that's probably going to be a part of his. Um, mm. I I find them you know, we see the contrast of these two mothers politically. We see the contrast of them in how they treat their sons. We see the contrast of like where they, they, their communities, where they grew up, that kind of thing. I I think it's very, it's very interesting to me and uh, did not think we'd be getting that angle in Star Wars. <laughs> so um, I'm going to wrap us up. I will say that, you know, this episode is going to come out before the election. And I really encourage people that one of the things that you can best do to keep yourself from losing your mind is to take meaningful action in some way towards the outcome of the election. Um, having agency in the world around you is an important part of feeling any semblance of control or satisfaction in life. And excited to say in this new era of digital organizing and such, like there are things that you can do online. Like you don't, you know, I, as much as it's amazing to go door knocking, like if that's not, if that's not you, there are other ways to drop in and help um, whether it's text banking or doing uh, communications with people that, you know, in your network, there's some, uh, I'm always posting different ways to volunteer from my Twitter account, which is E L A N A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Um, there's a really great uh, program being run by Working Families Party that's all based on Slack that anybody can kind of join in and find things that they can help out with online, like text banking and phone banking, et cetera. Um, and I know that without that kind of work, I would lose my mind. So, yeah. Um, Charles, do you have anything you want to plug at the end of the show and let our listeners know where they can keep up with your work? No, no. I encourage my listeners not to not to worry about me. <laughs> Uh, fair enough. You can t- be the man of the mystery, uh, <laughs> co-founder of Organizing 2.0. Um, and uh, Claudia, where can our listeners keep up with your work online? Uh, that that's so that's so admirable. I'm on social media at Kaludia says K A L U D I A says mainly Twitter and and TikTok. Uh, I talk about all of the Star War um, and other things. I, I do actually talk about other things. I, I do. Um, <laughs> I yeah. I used to talk way more about political stuff and then my employer threatened me for my political speech and then I decided to just talk about Star Wars all the time. I no longer have a job, so it doesn't matter. Um, but <laughs> um, Welcome it's, back. A very long story. Um, but I uh, then I also have our two podcasts, RuPaul's Pod Race. Um, yes, it is a joke about RuPaul. Um, the podcast started because we, um, <laughs> we were making a joke about how RuPaul supports fracking. And is problematic and has lets people frack on his land. And then we were like, oh, Ru-, we were like, RuPaul fracks on Mustafar. And then we we're like, that's a funny joke. What if we made it into a podcast name? And then it went from there. Um, it's so, it's so much. But we, I, I, on our podcast, we're at RuPaul's Pod Race everywhere. Um, and also, you know, in any podcast app and whatever. And uh, we basically spend the first half of our, our show talking about like whatever the latest Star Wars media is usually doing like critical analysis about like representation and the politics and, you know, just the general things that we liked about it. And then the other half of the show, um, we play very stupid little games um, about Star Wars that um, are very brainless and they're very fun. Um, this, the main one involving fan fiction it is 
absolutely insane. Um, so half of it you can use your brain and then the rest of it you can go, oh my God, that was crazy. But yeah, it's a fun and cool time with some people who know way too much about Star Wars. Um, but like, I, I feel like anybody can enjoy, I know people who are like, yeah, I don't know what the hell you people are talking about, but it's funny um, <laughs> half the time. I also do a, I do have a Supernatural podcast um, because it is a bad show and I don't think people should watch it. So my friend and I are forcing ourselves to rewatch it. And then we're going to tell you what happens and and um, w- why it made people crazy uh, and so that no one else watches it. Um, yeah, I would but, like to know why other people like that because it's so bad. Yeah, that's what the whole it's that's so what bad. the whole podcast is about. Where we're we're gonna Fair delve enough. into the worst show ever made and explain to you why people went crazy and why you shouldn't watch it every week. Um, it's quite it's a quite <laughs> fun. Um, it's called the Mystery Spotcast. It's very fun. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I am. You're an amazing resource yeah. of Star Wars information. Oh. We, we need we we wouldn't have it otherwise. So yeah. Um, Listeners, again, you can follow me on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn um, and Graphic Policy Radio will continue to be a place to hear about comics and comics writers, comics artists. We will cover Andor again, I'm sure. And uh, there's more episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Dive because we do indeed uh, watch both of those worlds um, coming up your way as well. If you've made it this far, I have to share with you this bonus from the sound check that we did before we recorded. Uh, which involves singing the Internacional very intergalactically. Charles, talk to me. How do you, I want to hear how you sound. How's that? Arise, you prisoners yeah. of starvation. Arise, you wretched of the earth. <laughs> Arise, you prisoners of starvation. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> good. Keep keep talking, I guess. Oh, God. <laughs> I definitely don't know that in Hebrew, but... um. So I want you to know that one of the things I thought about was that if there was yeah. a version of the Internationale in the Star Wars galaxy, it means that different races would be singing it, even though they have different vocal cord structures and ways of making sound. So imagine like insect aliens or aliens that communicate telepathically or aliens that don't have consonants, all singing the same International Galactic Song of Liberation. Oh, that's very... Um, that's I'm trying to I'm going through the encyclopedia of my mind um, <laughs> rather than Wikipedia of if something <laughs> like that exists. Um, it's called the international in our gal in our little world. It's called the international. But in the Star be Wars so universe, cool. what would it mean to see everyone standing together, different kinds of aliens, different kinds of atmospheres, all singing the same unifying rebel song? They never show that. They left it fucking out. That well, it's. It's not time yet, right? Like they haven't all unified yet. I'm okay. So I'm going to use this clip in <laughs> the actual episode. Um, somebody, I, I said I wasn't going to, but I am going to use that because I don't want to make you have to reenact it. Um, I just went. Of course, I went on Wikipedia, which knows more than I do. There are protest songs um, that are canon. There is one called Vader's Many Prosthetics Parts, and I have to know what the <laughs> lyrics of it are. I have to know. That's oh my amazing. god. Okay, I've read the book that this is from, but it's really, it's like, you know, when they took the old books and they made them not canon anymore. <gasps> um, and, and, but one of the, at least one of them, they did make canon. It mocks Darth Vader and it comes out 10 years before the Battle of Yavin. Um, wow. <laughs> and it's apparently people who are spice whining on Kessel sing this to make fun of him. Oh, that is hilarious. 
Um, I'm into it. And as we like to say, keep it geeky. 